Some of you might remember that I graduated from a high school called Cloverleaf High School. It was as country as it sounds. We were the country bumpkins in the conference, and sometimes we competed like it, and it had its advantages too. One of the things I considered an advantage about my high school was one day a year, we had what was called Tractor Day. Maybe some of the schools around here do it too, but uh, everybody who could get their hands on one from somebody who's crazy enough to let somebody drive their tractor to school would drive their tractor to school and the parking lot be full of those things. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And I wondered this morning as people are driving up the road and they see this big steamroller parked out in our parking lot if they thought, it must be heavy equipment day at that church or something. <laughs> and we're gonna have our, our driveway sealed this week. There'll be stuff all around all week, but uh, I'm thankful to uh, uh, Nick Little for, for uh, bringing that actually. They rolled the lawn and I don't think our kids are going to twist ankles anymore playing soccer. And, and those of you who are mowing the lawn won't be shaking like this all the way across the lawn anymore. I think it's going to be pretty level. But uh, you know people, people might think those crazy religious people in there, what are they doing now? That's what they see around them. A lot of crazy religious people. Religious people are all over the map. They're all over the map on what they believe and what they do, aren't they? They're the first to rush in many times with humanitarian aid in a time of crisis. Sometimes they're the cause of the crisis. All right? um, we'll band together for something we believe to be a great cause. Religious people do. And, and religious people divide over the littlest causes. Religious people will devote themselves to saving people's lives. Other religious people will devote themselves to killing people, taking their lives. Some religious people might refuse to be associated with culture and, and, and retract from that culture to preserve what they believe. Other Religious people capitalize on what's going on in culture. I, I know there are Pokemon Go sermons being preached this very day, actually. Others capitalize on it to get their message out there to the culture. Some religious folks refuse the advances of science and medicine in particular. Others are driving scientific research in those areas to help heal people. Isn't that interesting? Religious people are all over the map. But the one thing they have in common, it seems, is that they're passionate. They're passionate. And they're passionate because of something they believe in. Something they believe to be true. Whether it comes from a God, or a man, or from within. When we talk about religion, there's three definitions given that are all relevant. We actually use them all in our common language. One is just when we refer to people who believe in a god or gods. Another is just speaking of the organized system of beliefs and ceremonies and, and rules used in service to the god or gods. And yet another one, probably more honest, in, in dictionary definitions is 
that religion might refer to an interest or a belief or an activity that is very important to a person or a group. And sometimes we say loosely, we do something religiously. I, I do that religiously, you know, and we mean I have a, a, an intense interest in that. Now, to be religious is a little different. To be religious is a little different. This refers to a person's expression of worship toward that God or gods or interest. It refers to following the rules, if you will, of a religion and being very careful to do what can or should be done. So some definitions go. And another definition said to be scrupulously and conscientiously faithful to one's beliefs. And so we have religious people who are religious about their religion. Are you a religious people? Are you personally religious? I would say to you, yes, of course you are. Because we've learned that everybody worships someone or something. Everybody's religious toward some interest, whether it be the God of heaven, some other God of choice, or an interest that you have that you pour yourself into in obedience and subservience. Everybody's religious. You know, even those who want to be free from religion, like the foundation, Freedom From Religion Foundation, isn't it amazing? They believe so strongly that religion is the problem, and in many cases it is. False religion is the problem, that's right. But they believe it so strongly that they've organized a system of beliefs and they are scrupulously and conscientiously carrying out their message that we need to be freed from religion. And in do doing so, they become one of the most religious people on earth in the way that they carry out their message to others. So religiosity does not guarantee goodness. It doesn't guarantee justice. It doesn't guarantee salvation. Most religions, in fact, have some truth weaved in, into them, don't they? I, I would even venture to say, I don't know what all religions do and what all are out there. There's so many. But everyone I've been acquainted with or learned something of has some truth weaved into it. But as long as religion's coming from within man, remember this, it'll be jaded, it'll be bigoted, and there will be injustices. As long as it's coming from men, those things will always be the case. The reason Jesus stirs up the passions in people religiously, whether one is for him or against him, the reason Jesus specifically stirs up the passions of people is because of his claim to be the Son of God and the strong case that he made to support it, it's hard to ignore. Anyone who's seeking truth has to take a serious look at Jesus, if not for his profound claims, for the histor historical documentation that he backed these things up, that it impacted followers who also were empowered with abilities beyond those of mere men, and that it has carried its way down to our present age in such a way that people's lives are still being transformed by the proclamation of this man. If it's true, it implies 
that every other religion on earth is false. In fact, it goes so far, and the Apostle Paul will write later, that every thought, and in another place, every philosophy of men must be arrested and brought into the captivity of Jesus Christ and his worldview. But if it's true, that is a, a correct implication. If he is the son of God and, and speaks this truth from the God of the universe, then, then that is the necessary inference that we draw from that. Jesus' words are then true. There's only one God and, and he is the, the way to him. He's the access to that, that God. And his followers are heralds of truth. His followers are to be respected as he reigns over them in justice and in judgment. But if he's not the son of God, if his case is cracked, if it leaks, if it doesn't hold water, if, his, if he's a liar, if he's a liar, then he's worthy of only spite and rejection. And his followers then are pathetic and should be silenced. That's the view of many. And in a sense, it's true. In a sense, it's true. And this is where Saul of Tarsus comes into the biblical narrative. This is where Saul of Tarsus comes in to the story of the church of Christ. Saul said, no, liar and pathetic followers. And I will not stop defending my God until these people are locked up in silence. But that wasn't working. As they were being dispersed, as they spoke in prisons, as, as, they, were, as they were going to their death boldly in his name, it only spread like wildfire. And so he was breathing murder against them as well and carried it out. We read in Acts chapter 7 that when Stephen was martyred, stoned to death by his own brethren, that they laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul who was consenting to Stephen's death, Acts 8 says. He consented. He gave the nod. He was a man in a position of great authority in the Jewish religion and saw Jesus and his disciples as a threat to his religion. And by the time we come around to Acts chapter 9, Saul has letters from the high priest, legal documents that he can enter into synagogues and he goes to Damascus for reasons that John explained well on Wednesday night perhaps. He goes to Damascus and has permission to go into their places of worship and learning and identify and arrest and imprison and perhaps even murder, if possible, men and women who profess the name of Jesus as Lord. Dragging them out of their own homes in Jerusalem to start with and committing them to prison. Long sentences. Separated from their spouses, from their families. Saul was, the Bible says, wreaking havoc on the church. Until we come to Acts chapter 9 and verse 3. When we come to verse 3, things change. The game changes. But we can read about Saul's religious background 
and see all that he had done. I'd like to talk to you a little bit before we get into to, to the to the incident that happened in chapter nine also about, about how it is possible that Saul missed Jesus as the Son of God. How did he miss him? The great question, how did he miss him? This educated man, educated by the best teachers in the law of Moses, God's covenant with his people, and how he missed the Messiahship of Jesus is because Saul's religion was not solely based upon the law and the prophets of Scripture. It was not solely based upon God's Word. There was more to Saul's religion than that. You see, while Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic system like a glove fits over a hand, I was going to say like a hand and a glove, but he actually is more like the glove that was fitted over the hand. While Jesus fit like that with Judaism, and he himself early on said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, to bring it to its fullness and so that it might serve its purpose to bring about this day. He clashed with the traditions of the fathers of the Jews, which was that additional part of the religion of the Jews, in particular the Pharisees of that day. They had traditions that they had exalted up to the level of Scripture, and Jesus cleverly pointed out how they were doing this on a number of, of occasions and only enraged those sects of the Jews against himself. And Saul was one who, in his own words, would say, in Galatians chapter 1, for you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism. So he's going to explain the way he thought. Listen to this. You've heard of my former conduct in Judaism. Notice he doesn't say in the law and the prophets. He says in Judaism as it, is, as it was known in that day, mixed with the traditions of the fathers. He said, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And he says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now there's where his mind was. He was not only an Old Testament scholar. He was a scholar of the rabbinical writings of the Jews. And he said, I advanced beyond my contemporaries. Where's the competition among, among God's people of advancement in the Old Testament? Who's, go, who's going to become more powerful based upon positions of office and authority and knowledge? Where do you see that in the Old Where do you see that in the New Covenant? That we, we recognize somebody who passes certain exams or tests or criteria to hold power and then we give them some lofty status, and they are more advanced in their faith than any others. You know, even the criteria for our leaders are criteria that every Christian should be striving for. 
they are those that we've recognized have had some mastery in it, but we don't consider them more advanced in this system. And it wasn't in the Old Testament that way either. So he was competing with his brethren. And he said, I was more zealous for the traditions of my fathers than they all. I wanted to be known as the one who understood, the one who was, who was sought out to explain the tedious nature of every law, tradition, practice of the Jews. I was more zealous than they all. That's how you miss the Messiah of the Old Testament. That's how you overlook passages like Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where Micah said that a ruler will come from among you and he'll be born in Bethlehem Ephratah. And he didn't bother to trace Jesus back to Bethlehem, but rather amongst the, the, the Jews said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You grew up in Nazareth. Can anything good? You see, they, they weren't looking in the right places. And the traditions of the fathers masked the prophetic promises and depictions of the Messiah. They couldn't see the real Jesus because they were so caught up in their tradition. And the legalistic system of the Pharisees was built so that they could merit salvation as they advanced in popularity, prestige, and rank. Paul said it himself. I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. That's a violently arrogant man. I'm, I was arrogant, and I would challenge anybody who challenged me. Insolent man. But I obtained mercy. He said in Philippians, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, I've counted them lost for Christ. You see, Saul's education led him to self-dependence and therefore to self-righteousness. And he used his high position and his scrupulous religious practice as leverage with God. Now I want you to think about that for just a second. He used his scrupulous practice of religiosity as leverage with God. God owes me something that I've earned favor with him because of what I am doing. I want you to think about that because we can fall into that trap here in the body of Christ, in your own walk. Legalism, Phariseeism can fall into that trap so easily, personally, that God should do something. I deserve something from God. He was a legalist using the law to advance his own status. He trusted in his name, a Pharisee. He trusted in his name and accomplishments to make him worthy of salvation. But in Acts 9, Jesus confronts this very religious and passionate man and his mission, which was not only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, it was to the lost religious sheep of the house of Israel. His mission is not to the, just to the irreligious today, those out among us in unbelief, 
that, that are just totally lost from God in sin. His mission is also to the religious, and we are religious. Something brought you here today. And I want to make sure when we leave here that you're asked the same question that Saul of Tarsus asked, which changed him dramatically. What a shocking story. Reminds me of the time when Nathan came to King David and told him about the rich man and the poor man that both of them lived in a city. And there was a poor man who had a little ewe lamb and it was like a daughter to him. It, it, it stayed with him and they, they had it in their house and cherished it. And there was a rich man who had many lambs, but a stranger came into town and the rich man went and took and offered uh, for a feast the poor man's only lamb and David was enraged. And he said, this man ought to be killed and restore fourfold what he had to the poor man. And Nathan said, you are the man. That's what this reminds me of. Saul is just locked in, enraged against those blasphemers, those who would, who would steal God's law and His will away from these poor people. And Jesus came to him and in this phrase, changed everything. I am Jesus. I am Jesus. Life-changing moment for Saul. He had asked a thousand questions about this growing phenomenon called the way. And these people called Christians this group of rebels against Judea, he asked a thousand questions, but the question he failed to honestly and personally investigate for himself was, who are you? Who are you? And he says in this context, who are you, Lord? And, and I don't think that it means that he was calling him his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He didn't know who he was. He was being respectful of this divine manifestation which blinded him on the road and brought him to his knees. He knew it was a greater power than himself, and it was divine. And he said, who are you, Lord? Ironically, he addressed Jesus properly. And later when he would say, Lord, he would mean Lord and Savior. But he didn't understand Jesus until he asked for himself, who are you? Reminds me of Pilate and Jesus standing together in the praetorium when Pilate said, do you not know that I have the authority to kill you or to release you? And he, he said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, are you asking for yourself? Because if Pilate was asking, who are you really? It would have changed his perception of Jesus. There's three things that were revealed to Saul by Jesus appearing and saying, I am Jesus. Number one, that Jesus is alive. Now Saul had heard about the gospel facts. He had heard about this man. He had uh, witnessed those who had witnessed Jesus. He had learned of the, of the tenets and facts of the, the gospel. He just didn't believe it. He was dead, and now... Jesus is before him and is very much alive. And so the Roman guards 
record of, of, of going to the priests and, and the priests paying them and saying, tell people that the disciples came and stole his, stole his body and bribed them that they might say the same. That was a, a scandal. It was a scandal. Jesus is alive and Saul has to deal with him now as a living deity. Secondly, Jesus is Lord because he is manifesting himself not as a mere man before him on the road, but in a divine manifestation. And the glory of the Lord that Saul had heard about from days of old, so bright that you couldn't look upon it, and, and he fell to the earth. And God intentionally blinded him by this bright light. And it authenticated in a moment all of those preposterous claims that this poor man from Nazareth had made about being the son of God. All of those claims that enraged him are now authenticated as true. And finally, Jesus and Christians are one. Because Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, he wasn't actually persecuting Jesus, was he? He was persecuting those people who were following him. And Jesus said, you're persecuting me. And there's grave consequences for hurting his body, his bride, and his brethren. The vine and the branches, and, and, and woe to him who offends one of these little ones. And, and if you visited those who are sick and in prison and fed the hungry and clothed the naked, you've, you've done so to me. All of those things that he had been teaching are all of a sudden brought together in the fact that Saul had been persecuting Jesus by his actions. He thought he was God's greatest ally and worthy of all honor and now realizes that he's an enemy of God. All at once he realizes he's the one in the story of Nathan who stole the, the lamb of God from the poor and offered him up to the idol of the Pharisees, which is self-righteousness. Talk about having to backpedal. I remember, I remember backpedaling once. I realized I was very wrong. I was so excited. I spent the summer in North Carolina doing an internship on one of the summers in between my college years. And I had met this girl named Monica. I was crazy about her, but I was in North Carolina and she was in Ohio. And I, I, I took a weekend, I was gonna go see her and I left at four in the morning, well before daylight. Got three hours of the trip up 77 under my belt before the sun started to come up. I noticed how beautiful it was coming up as I looked at it in my rearview mirror. East, that means I'm going west. Should be going north. And then I saw as the light was shining upon the sign, Knoxville, Tennessee, so many miles ahead. And I went, oh no. So no GPS and cell phones, right? a while back, 25 years ago, by the way, and pull out the map. Man, there ain't any shortcuts through eastern Kentucky or West Virginia, amen? <laughs> I had to backtrack all the way painfully, heartbroken, all the way back to Withville, Virginia, that awful place where you can do that and get off track. 
backtrack there and just try to redeem some time. Yeah, I probably went a little faster than I was going to go before. To redeem some time, I thought, that was so frustrating. You talk about backtracking. Paul, his new name that God gave him. Paul was blinded. He could only see inside of his heart. Think about that. He could sense what was around him, but he, God, I don't think, punished him. I think he helped him at that time to only focus inwardly for three days. And Saul took a journey back, back to the point where he had gotten off track. A dark journey into the recesses of his heart. He went all the way back and said, this implies that I've been wrong from the very, very beginning. I have to go all the way back and start again as if I'm a baby, as if I've been born again, and have to relearn how to see things now in light of Jesus and His truth and His teachings. And so Ananias said, yes, now arise and be born again. And Saul then, praying for his brethren, praying that they would seek not their own righteousness anymore, Romans chapter 10, but the righteousness that is in Christ Jesus set out, being converted in his head now, in his heart, now with his feet, now with his hands and feet, sets out to take this message to his countrymen. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, he has to recount the dark the dark journey, the, the turnaround, and he said, I thank God, or I thank Christ Jesus, my Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtain mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe after me for everlasting life. Now the, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to to, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That was his story now. But you know, Saul would not have understood what was true about religion. He would not have, have been a truly honorable religious man if he had not asked the question first, Who are you, Lord? If you ask, What do I do? How do I do it? When do I do it? You'll become religious. People will give you things to do and you'll say, oh, look at me, look at me go. I'll do these things and I'll, I'll be religious. That will make God happy, but we know now, especially now, that we need to ask the question, who are you? And if you do, you need to be prepared to become a Christian and to call Him Lord. That's the power of the gospel message of Jesus is that truth of His death, burial, and resurrection will enter into your heart and it will begin to cleanse out or sanctify all of that darkness. And that's not something that's just done overnight either. That's a lifelong journey, isn't it? That's a lifelong journey of maturing. And don't forget, seasoned Christians, 
don't forget how hard it is for people to be faced with the facts of the gospel and have to go back and make that dark journey back in their life to, to acknowledge and confess all of their sinfulness and lay it at the cross of Christ. That's not easy to do. It's not easy for a babe in Christ to learn of the darkness and have to lay it at the feet of Christ. We should help each other. And I think that's why we're here this morning, to help each other obey the gospel and make disciples. So I want to call you to that. I want to call you that this morning to let the gospel clean you out in the head and the heart and, and in your feet to go with it. And Rod, you can come up and lead this song. And let's stand and sing to our God and praise Him and thank Him for washing us.